Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer. Hi, and welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast. This is Rocky Deer coming back to you. You know, we've got, we've got a big question today. We need to talk about the promised land. Every lawyer out there knows what I'm talking about. It's the promised land. You get out of law school, you go work at a firm for a few years, and then you go in-house. We all want to go in-house, right? Every lawyer wants to someday go in-house because, oh, it means predictable hours, it means weekends off, and it means that life suddenly gets much, much easier. Or does it? Let's talk about that. I've got a couple of amazing guests here with us today, and we're going to learn everything there is to know about going in-house. So first, in no particular order, we've got Shruti Krishnan. Shruti is in Dallas. She is actually in-house counsel at Ziosk. And if you don't know what Ziosk is, Shruti is going to tell us in just a moment. And we've also got Bill Cruz. Bill is actually a regulatory and compliance lawyer at Gallup in Washington, D.C. He's He's got great stories about D.C., but he's also got some great insights on going in-house. Why? Because he's literally written the book on it. It's called The Corporate Counsel Survival Guide, and we're going to talk about that in just a second. Bill Shruti, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to have you both here with us. So, you know, tell me something. In-house, is it really peaches and cream and daffodils and running through meadows with not a care in the world? I think you can take from our silence. We, we don't agree. Yeah, it sounds like this is one of those those myth fact kind of things. So, Shruti, let's kind of start with your story here a little bit. Tell us about how you ended up in house, and first of all, tell us what Ziosk is. Well, Ziosk actually is known as Tabletop Media, and we basically manufacture the proprietary set of tablets that are at restaurants such as Chili's, Olive Garden, Red Robin, and Friendly's. These are tablets where you can order menu items off of them, and then you could also pay at the table and then play games and premium content. Yeah, because I would, I would never play any of those games. Never, ever, ever, right? No. I hope of there's no not. cameras watching me play those games at the, at the Olive Garden. With the endless salad and breadsticks, I get to play endless games. So that's actually kind of cool. Now, full disclosure to everybody, I've actually known Bill and Shruti each individually for a number of years now, although... The two of you are now meeting each other for the first time. So, you know, I, I know a little something about each of these folks. And Shruti, you've been in-house for like five years now. Is that right? I believe so. Yes. And that crazy time flies, right? I know. We're almost to retirement, Shruti. Can you believe it? That's how fast this time is moving. I sure hope so. <laughs> <laughs> no, knowing, knowing you two, you'll never retire. You guys are going to be always at it and doing something fun. So, so Shruti, you were, at a, you were at a law firm before. What kind of work did you do before going in-house? So I actually practiced healthcare law. My backstory is that I graduated in 2010, kind of towards the tail end of the recession. And right. so while I was a summer associate doing intellectual property work, I actually graduated without a job. Fun fact. <laughs> and I think there were many like you. I mean, you weren't alone by any means, right? No, no, I wasn't alone. You know, unfortunately, in 2010, a lot of firms wouldn't even interview candidates until after we passed the bar exam because there were so many people from the previous years that were deferred or who had offers rescinded. Right. No, I I remember that well. It was a a tough time for all new law grads. So 
what happened after that? You you graduate, you pass the bar exam, and then were you just kind of hurrying up and waiting, or what happened? I was. I was waiting. I was, you know, applying to every potential job that I saw. I actually even did some unpaid internships with UT Arlington right. with their Office of Technology Transfer and Management. And then um, I met with someone who was able to send my resume on to one of her contacts at a small mid-sized, or I guess a mid-sized Texas firm. And, you know, I was primarily interested in intellectual property, but my background is in the life sciences. And intellectual property in the DFW area is more geared towards people with engineering backgrounds. And so I thought I would, you know, take a chance on another practice area and pursue healthcare law. And so that's what I initially practiced when I was at a firm. And, you know, it just, it wasn't for me, (laughs) to be frank. Um, I wasn't really happy with what I was doing. I ended up doing a lot of work on Medicare and Medicaid audits and anti-kickback and Stark. And essentially, healthcare wasn't all that I thought it would be. So are you talking about the practice area or are you saying working at a firm? Where was the fit issue that you were experiencing? I think it was twofold. One, it was the practice area. And two, my experience at the firm was, you know, there were wonderful people that I was working with, but I didn't really have anyone in my practice group who could provide mentorship or be an advocate for me. Shortly after I joined the firm, the two senior associates in my section departed. So it was... Ah. Basically, myself and you know the higher higher level partners with no bridge between us. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so there was a mentorship gap for you that you were kind of missing out on, or you felt maybe you needed to have in your professional life. Correct. I essentially never had any face time with clients, and so it's very isolating feeling like you're working on something but having absolutely no interaction directly with a client. And so, at some point, you say it's time for me to maybe change course a little bit. Did you have your eyes set on going in-house or did in-house come to you? In-house actually came to me. Wow, okay. So you went from graduating with with no job, as you said, to having a wonderful in-house opportunity basically make its way over to you. That's That's a total change and reversal in course for you. It is. You know, sometimes they say when it rains, it pours. Yeah, wow. Okay, so... So an in-house job made its way over to you. What kind of work was it? And did your healthcare experience kind of help you at all with that? Can you walk us through that? Sure. I actually left my firm position without having another job in place. And so (laughs) saying that the in-house position came directly to me is a little bit misleading. I was looking around at other opportunities and I had been interviewing at firms and I'd also met with a couple of recruiters and nothing had really come to fruition. And Mm -hmm. I had actually been introduced to some attorneys, including you, Rocky, through a (laughs) Twitter group. (laughs) It was tweet ups, tweet ups, as we called it. We were like Smurfs. Everything was about Twitter or tweeting. Absolutely. It was essentially a group of DFW attorneys who were active on Twitter and who'd meet up for monthly happy hours. And one member of this group actually sent out a tweet saying, hey, I have a friend who's a general counsel of a small tech startup company and is looking for a junior attorney to come work for her. 
Uh-huh. And um, essentially, I immediately direct messaged her and sent her my resume, and it got passed along to one person and then to another person, and then finally to this general counsel who then called me up, and I met her for lunch, and that was it. And then you went in-house. Now, the kind of work you were doing at this first company before you landed at Tabletop Media, was it healthcare-related, or was it a whole new world for you? A whole new world. It was technology-related, particularly software technology, and the industry was different. It was actually in both the fuel space and the grocery space and had to do with loyalty programs. Wow. Now that's, okay. And then now, all right, so you do that for a little while. And then after a number of years, I think it was, if I remember, it was about four years for you before you landed mm-hmm. at Almost Tabletop Media. Now, Correct. Tabletop, did you carry over any skills from your last company over to Tabletop or was it yet again a complete sea change in terms of work? Well, it was a change as far as industry is concerned. At Tabletop, we do a lot of manufacturing and we also do software, but it's a restaurant industry, right? So it's not in the fuel space. It's not in the grocer space. However, a lot of the tasks are similar, essentially working on contracts and regulatory matters, working with, you know, HR, with the chief security officer on data security and privacy, things of that nature. So it sounds like in both cases, you had a pretty steep learning curve going from going from law firm and healthcare into technology manufacturing, and then from there over to what you're doing now. I mean, it was every single time you had to learn either a new industry or a new paradigm of doing work. Is that is that fair? That is. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now I want to take a second and kind of get Bill's perspective, because, you know, full disclosure, Bill and I are older <laughs> than, than Shruti. So we've been around a while. We're more, I think, Bill, they, they call us seasoned now. I think we're at the point in our careers where we're seasoned which I don't know if that's good or bad. No, old. Old? Okay, well. Just old. Because, I mean, seasoning is what you oftentimes do to to food, so I don't know if that means we're just, our goose is cooked or what. So, Bill, now, first of all, you started out your career actually in the U.S. Coast Guard, Yeah, right? yeah, I did. So, um, it, it was fairly interesting. My uh, I spent a, a good deal of time getting through undergrad, was in no hurry, had a lot of fun, and had always planned on two things in my life, and one was to serve in the military. It had been a family thing and um, just something I always wanted to do, and the other was to be a lawyer. I uh, grew up as a kid watching Matlock and Perry Mason and you know, reading legal fiction, and so I, I got great opportunities uh, to do both in my career. Well, first of all, thank you for your military service. I, being a lawyer is thankless, but thank you for your military service <laughs> and for, for all you did for the country. I, I think I got more out of it than they got out of me personally. But uh. <laughs> Well, from some of the stories I've heard, it sounds like that might actually be true. But after you got out of law school, you did mostly like maritime and admiralty work, if I recall, right? Yeah, it was, it was maritime and railroad both. They share a lot of bodies of law. When I was on active duty, they were kind enough to send me to law school, and that's kind of what I mean when I say I got a lot more out of them. Um, ah. So I, I had the benefit of being able to graduate uh, without a lot of debt, but a lot of students you know, don't have that opportunity today. Sure. And I was sure. really torn. I wanted to stay in. I really enjoyed practicing law in the Coast Guard. Um, I, I got an opportunity to work under our JAG team in Miami while I was there after I had been transitioned off a ship. 
worked with a, a bunch of great folks. We were doing some interesting stuff sort of as an externship program for me because I still had my main job in finance and procurement for the Coast Guard. But, you know, we got to work on international issues, you know, ships wanting to board one country's flag vessels and another country's waters. And you'd be the, you know, on-call desk attorney and try to figure out bilateral treaty agreements. And then you might be working on procurement law. You know, the Coast Guard buys things and has federal acquisition regulations they have to follow. So you might be working on some of those issues. And then you may have uh, a Coastie who gets in a bar fight at a port call, and maybe you got some UCMJ issues. And so, you know, not that that happens a lot, thankfully. The Coast Guard's full of good uh, <laughs> sure. active-duty seamen and uh, great gals as well, and um, they're luckily a good group, so there was not a lot of UCMJ issues. But, you know, those are the types of things that just kind of happen, or you'd get loaned out to the U.S. Attorney's Office prosecuting some type of crime that the Coast Guard had arrested someone for, um, you know, whether it's fisheries or people smuggling or something like that. So, you know, I got to work under some great attorneys on a lot of those types of issues, kind of in a quasi in-house role, if you think of the JAG that way. Right. Got out. uh, I had also worked on felony work for Miami-Dade Public Defender's Office, BNC felony trial work as part of a law school experience that was amazing. But that was an interesting career junction for me because my time was up in the Coast Guard and I needed to make a decision if I stayed in and did my career as a JAG lawyer or, you know, transitioning from my my job into permanent JAG type of status on the Coast Guard or um, practice outside. And I had a older friend who had gone to law school with me and he said, you know, you really love being in a courtroom. You loved it with the public defender's office. It'd be a shame if you you're not going to get a lot of those opportunities as a JAG lawyer. And maybe get out Mm -hmm. for a little while, go to a firm, and then if you want, you can always get back in. And so I did. I went to a firm initially in the Midwest where they did a lot of railroad and some maritime. They wanted to grow their maritime practice. I was coming out of the Coast Guard, and they saw it as a good fit and hired me. And it was uh, the start of my career. So going from Coast Guard JAG over to your firm, and doing admiralty work. Was that, for you, a pretty steep learning curve, or did that just kind of seem to naturally flow from one to the other? So, minor correction. So, Coast Guard, you know, they had paid for law school, but I never transitioned to their JAG. I, I worked under them as part oh, of the okay. program. But, and it was it was a transition, right? Uh, it was a first, I won't say, it was my first real foray into practice outside was litigating maritime and and railroad cases. And, and, you know, it was a shocker. It was a shocker in the level of work of a nationwide litigation practice. It was a transition for me. I was used to deploying for three, four months at a time and then coming home and being home for a while. And, And it was weird to go to a job where I was on the road four days a week in three different states at any given time, barely home, see the dog, have a date with a wife at an airport because she might be traveling for work. But, you know, it was, it, it ended up being almost the same number of days away, but just interspersed to where you couldn't gather a rhythm to your life, a rhythm underway, a rhythm deployed, and then a rhythm at home. That was a lifestyle change for me. You took your wife to dates at the airport. She must be the single most, most generous Lucky. and tolerant woman. Lucky. Well, <laughs> Lucky you. <No. laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, lucky, lucky, she you. Put, lucky she put up with it. 
<laughs> I'm telling you, you could have gone from the runaway to having a runaway. So yeah. <laughs> this is you got lucky she stuck around. So so you worked at the firm a couple of years, I imagine. And then at yeah. some point, at some point, now you went you went straight from that firm over to Gallup, and the rest is history. You've been at Gallup for the remainder of your career up till now, yeah. right? So yeah. now talk about that transition. I mean, you know, going from law firm to Gallup, I don't imagine were you doing a lot of admiralty and maritime work at Gallup, or was it just a whole different practice area for you? You know, it was a whole different practice area. It was interesting. I had thought I would go back into the Coast Guard. And this is where Shruti and I have somewhat of an overlap in the weird job downturn of the employment industry story. Mm-hmm. My original thing was I would practice for a while and then go back in. I put a JAG package together and submitted it, went through my interviews, background investigation, the whole nine yards to go back through my interviews. One of the lawyers I had served under wrote my letter of recommendation. He was in charge of the Naval War College legal branch. He was training the new JAG attorneys as they were coming in. I thought I would be a shoe-in with his recommendation. Uh, And I would have been, but the lawyer and economy crunch happened and they took, uh, they had enough people in the extended education program to fill the ranks and just took no one from the outside that cycle. And so uh, Mm -hmm. I didn't get picked up. And my, uh, my career forecast changed greatly because of that. I had a discussion with the managing partner of my firm Uh, where I essentially just said, you know, this was not supposed to be my full career for my whole life. And I I love the training that I've had. I love the work. I'm not quitting because I'd need a job and there's no one hiring lawyers right now. Sure. But this isn't going to be my permanent future. And I think, you know, you guys have a right to know that. And I think this is a big chalk up to being open and communicating and being trustworthy and having trust in people. They kept me on. They didn't just walk me out the door and say, thanks. And they kept me on while I, while I looked for work and uh, knowing that I'd be transitioning. I moved to D.C. Uh, knowing there were quite a few companies here who did work with the federal government. And I figured I would use my time from active duty to parlay into an in-house job. And that's kind of essentially how I ended up at Gallup. They were looking for someone who had experience in government procurement. I was lucky enough to have done that while I was in the Coast Guard and then worked on some procurement law issues under the JAG guys while I was in law school. And it was, like you said, the rest is history. That's where I've been ever since. Okay. So now let's talk, both of you, in terms of that first day you go in-house. You know, you've been at a firm, and it sounds like neither of you really started out your legal careers envisioning that you'd be in-house as maybe at least not as quickly as you were. So, Shruti, let's maybe, let's maybe talk with you for a second. Describe that first day when you were in-house. How did it feel and how did it differ from what most of us might think of as work at a law firm? Well, I think the biggest difference in how I felt was when you go to a law firm, essentially you're with a class of other associates that are all starting at the same time as you, right? So you have several other people who are either your same age range or on your same experience level, and you're all kind of coming up together as a class. So there's that built-in camaraderie. I moved to a company, actually both of the companies I've been at have very small legal departments where it was essentially just myself and the general counsel. 
So it's mm-hmm. a bit isolating. Um, I was able to meet with a lot of the different internal clients, different business teams, but you're you're kind of out there on a little island on your own and no one to really show you the ropes, you know? Although I, I imagine it's got to be kind of refreshing to have, you know, for lack of a better term, normal people around you. It's not all lawyers all the time, right? I mean, you can meet... You can meet Betsy from accounting and Jim from marketing, and there's just different people with different backgrounds. I mean, that's got to be kind of refreshing. Oh, absolutely. I think it's refreshing to be able to speak with other people and interact with them on a daily yeah. basis. And they're, they're the people that you're actually providing services to. But in sure. that same respect, you know, especially going in-house so quickly, I was a little bit intimidated. You know, I moved to a company in, like I mentioned, the fuel and grocery industry, and I had no background in it. And I was working with business folks who had spent the majority of their careers in that industry. So that's definitely one of the things I had to overcome initially, you know, even as early as my first day, just trying to, you know, I guess, fake it till you make it and exude the confidence of, hey, I'm an attorney. I know what's going on. Did you find that the non-lawyers in your company had a preconceived notion about what lawyers are like? I mean, did they see the law department as kind of being the ones that tell them what they can't do and always says no all the time? Or, you know, were they, did they have a pretty, a pretty fair view of what lawyers do, at least in-house lawyers? I've been fortunate that both companies have been startups that have been around for between 10 and 20 years. And the first company I was at, they had only ever had a general counsel and she was even fairly new. She had been at the company for only two or three years prior to my arrival. So they didn't really have any preconceived notions and I'm very fortunate for that. Now at my current position, there are certainly a couple of people, particularly sales folks who definitely perceive legal to be the blockers. And, you know, as I say, and as I'm sure Bill will agree with me, Legal is never here to say no to anything unless it's absolutely illegal. What we try to do is say, (laughs) yes, but, and, you know, maybe you'll have a differing outcome, but, you know, we're going to try to minimize the risk and, and liability for the company. So Bill, you know, as we said earlier, you've, you've actually written a book, the corporate counsel survival guide. Now let's talk about maybe your first day on the job and what prompted you I guess about seven or eight years after your first day in-house to write a book. What brought this about? Sure. Yeah. So um, my first day was interesting. I um, I actually started a week early. They gave me a start date. Of course you did. And um, (laughs) of course you did. (laughs) But but then did you just show up at the door and say, "Hey, I'm here. Please show me my office." It was very close to that. They had no computer for me yet. Uh, the, they had no onboarding materials for me yet. Now, I, uh, I heard the CFO was in town. Our, uh, I work at our headquarters, but the CEO is here. The CFO and accounting is at a operational headquarters in Nebraska, okay. along with IT and a lot of our other uh, back office functions. Sure. And it was an excellent opportunity that I couldn't really miss. He wouldn't be here the following week when I was supposed to start. And, you know, as an in-house person, you really need to, you need to understand kind of where your C-suites are coming from. You need to have some face time with them. And so I just couldn't miss the opportunity. So I went ahead and I at least let the GC know that I would swing by. Uh, instead, I just 
went ahead and started my first day of work. So I came in, crashed a few meetings, got to know them. I had no computer or no work, so it was kind of a great first week. It was scary. I remember sitting at uh, Dunkin' Donuts down the street from my office, right where it used to be the Verizon Center, um, where the Capitals and the Wizards play, and now it's Capital One Arena. But I'm sitting there, and it's a you know cold, wet, rainy Washington, D.C., wintry day, and I'm just trying to kill time so I don't show up, you know, uh, two hours early, a week early. I at least wanted to come when people were here at the office. And, you know, I I remember talking, and there's a thing in a little intro in my book about this. I was talking to a very good friend of mine. We're still friends today. I'm not sure why. His name's David Pollack. And um, he says, you know, I can't believe they hired you. Do they know you have no clue what you're doing? And uh, thanks for the vote of confidence, Davey, on my first day. Right, of course. So, right, uh, right. Yeah. I would yeah. have said the same thing to you, by the way, if I'd known you back then. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm you would have. I'm with Davey on this one. Yeah, I'm with Davey I mean, on I've, that one. I've hidden it from them for eight years that they, I still don't know what I'm doing. So I come in and, and I lucked out that I work for one of the greatest bosses and, and a really great general counsel. He's like, well, welcome early. But, you know, I don't want you to try to rush into things. I want you to get the lay of the land from who does what and where. And I want you to take your time to understand the people here and the work we do. And, you know, it was all new to me. I didn't work before for an analytics advisory data, you know, consulting firm. I didn't know how we got clients or how we turned, you know, job leads into full-blown prospects, into, you know, onboard putting people on client site and creating work and billing. And, you know, there's just a lot that I didn't know. And so my first day and my first week, my first six months was like drinking from a fire hose. It was interesting and not anything like my practice of law at a firm. You know, I kind of knew at a firm, you know, work a case, get a case, work the facts, find witnesses, put a trial together and this was not like that. This was um, definitely the practice of law in a business, not the business of the practice of law. And first of all, I think this tells a stark contrast between you and me, because if I was in your shoes and I'd shown up a week early and didn't have a computer, I would be going full on George Costanza. <laughs> I'd be taking naps under my desk and I'd be walking around hurriedly trying to look busy while actually doing nothing. I mean, you know, hats off to you for, for actually making that a substantive first week. It would have been very different under my watch. So, <laughs> hey, <laughs> is what it is. But now let's maybe try to fast forward, you know, maybe a few steps. So you said it took you about six months to kind of get your bearings and see where everything is and meet the right people. One thing that kind of strikes me is you were rather prescient in thinking, all right, I need to go and meet the CFO. I need to meet the C-suite folks. Talk to us a little bit about how important that is. Because I think when you're practicing at a firm or when you're in law school, most of us are taught to think of our jobs vis-a-vis other lawyers. And the client is sort of this amorphous entity that we represent. You seem to have more of an insight into who within that client entity you'd want to get to know. So talk about the role of the C-suite, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. So your client is the company, right? Sure. The, the shareholders are owners and this, this company is a client and that seems easy to understand, but it oftentimes is, is murky. You have internal clients that really are kind of your clients, your internal stakeholders. 
you get work from them, you do work for them, but ultimately you're representing this amorphous thing called the company. Right. And yet, so internally, companies have power structures and they have resourcing issues. No company has unlimited amounts of resources, just, you know, so accounting doesn't get everything they want. And the people doing R&D work for whatever it is you're developing, designing, and ultimately selling, they don't have unlimited budgets and unlimited manpower. And sometimes there's competing between old, uh, the company, the way it was, and the things they used to do. And, you know, times change, and now you're selling different types of engagements or different client relationships different products, your service offerings change, and you're going to have folks who like it the way it was and some folks who see the future. And and those all come down to competing interests. And you really need to understand that there's a management team and they have, if they're working well together, which I was lucky at Gallup they were, they have a shared vision and a leadership strategy and a long-term plan and a short-term tactics. And you need, as a in-house counsel to understand where that leadership team has its head, because ultimately you're going to go back to your office and the clients you see every day, which may not be the CFO and the COO, it may be a director of sales for the East Coast or operations consulting lead for Mid-America, they may not be on the same page as the leadership team. And you need to understand your role when things are brought to you about where those fault lines are, where the trench lines are, and who you represent and how you best represent them, you you got to kind of understand what roles everyone has and where their interests lie and make sure they're in the best interest of the company and that you're backing up, I don't want to say the right team, but the team that's on your client, the company's best interest. So Shruti, does this all sound familiar or do you have a different take on this? No, I completely agree with Bill's sentiments. Absolutely. Now, Bill, something prompted you to write a book about your experiences in-house. What made you write a book, and how did you how did you kind of organize your thoughts into something that could be publishable and that people could read and digest? Kind of walk us through that process in your head of how you got from point A to being a published author. Yeah. So, um, you know, a couple of things transpired all around the same time. Uh, I happened to work for a general counsel who, as a hobby, he was a, uh, an English major for undergrad, writes a few novels or things like that and, and publishes them, and they're really good. As a hobby? Did you say that's a hobby? Yeah, that's his hobby. We were on a plane together once coming back from a meeting we had in Brussels, and he was sitting next to me and whips out this you know, word processor. You know, This was kind of pre Chromebooks or, you know, you could use your laptop, but he liked to use a personal device. And uh, so he had a, a small, I can't remember what it was, but anyway, he just starts typing and he's writing a book next to me, you know, making the most of his time during a flight. It made me watching a movie look like a slacker. And my wife says, you know, you could write a book too. You should write a book. You're, you're really good at writing or communicating. And I was kind of like, no, I don't have time for that. But then I got a call from a very good friend of mine, a lawyer from a firm we had used that her and I had done a lot of work together on different things for Gallup. And she says, hey, I'm, I'm going in-house and, um, and I need some help. Can you 
go out for a cup of coffee. So we, we go out for a cup of coffee. We're talking. She's asking all kinds of questions, things that Shruti and I have been talking about, the transition, who are the players. You know, she'd only spent time at a firm. She'd never been in, the, in a company, right? So what does that look like? Who has what roles? What do they do? How, do, how am I going to make this transition? What's my work day going to look like? What kind of things do I work on? What do people worry about who are in-house? And we joked around that there should be a survival guide for people to go in-house. And then right after that, I have the fortune of belonging to an amazing bar association section under the ABA, the tort trial insurance practice section. Absolutely. And someone uh, from a book publishing board, the one thing, great thing about belonging to a bar association is you do get opportunities to learn and grow as a professional, something a lot of in-house attorneys don't do or stop doing once they leave a firm. And they were looking for ideas for a book. And I joked around that, you know, I just met with someone who said we needed a survival guide for in-house counsel and the transition and all of the things. And they thought that was an amazing idea. So I got, I kind of accidentally walked into that one and um, raised my hand and said, okay, I guess I'll write it. And, and then to answer your next question, how did it end up on paper? You know, how did it, come to fruition, well, uh, I do spend a good deal of my time in places with no internet, which is hard to find nowadays, but uh, I happen to have been shortly after that meeting, I happened to find myself in Douala in Cameroon and was at a place that had no internet and no Wi-Fi. So I took it upon me between some meetings just to crank out some writing and then submitted those sample chapters, the book publishing board Loved it. Asked for a full transcript, and um, in a way, we were we were off. So started writing a book. There is so much to unpack here. So you've got a boss who writes novels for a hobby, and then you are in Cameroon with no internet. Now let me in when you're in Cameroon with no internet. Did they have television? <laughs> yeah, there is the hotel at least a small little hotel right in downtown Douala. By downtown, it's you know. Not New York City, uh, but, you know, it's downtown. It had a cathode ray tube television on the wall. So there was one TV, but none of the shows I'm used to normally watching now. Okay, so Shruti, look, I'm hoping you're with me on this one, because if I was in a country with no internet and even a TV on the wall, I'd be finding something to take interest in on the TV. I don't know that I would sit there and write a book. What about you? What would you do with all this time on your hands? Um, Do they have wineries? I don't know. <laughs> no, but they See, have some of the what most I'm amazing about. seafood. The generous people, very sweet. And so you could eat, but not really, not a lot of wineries, no. But still, would you write a book sitting there in your spare time? I, I'm not sure I would. Probably not a book. If I ever did walk into that space, I would probably write a blog versus a book. And it would be just stream of consciousness. Okay, blog I could see. You're both still more overachieving than I am. I think I'm going to start a club for substandard adults because I clearly don't know how to. I clearly don't know the adulting world as well as you two do. You guys are writing books and you're at least expressing a willingness to write a blog post. You got nothing else to do. I'm a total underachiever over here and I need to find a way to drown my sorrows. Okay, so now that we have established that I'm the underachiever in this threesome that we've got going on here, tell me about your, about maybe the lessons. Bill, that you think people need to learn? And then, Shruti, I want to see your reaction to those because we've got, you know, I certainly wouldn't, I've never been in-house. I don't know that I would know what to do if I was thrust into an in-house position. So 
Bill, what would you say are some of the, maybe the top three things that folks that are not in-house need to know about being in-house? Yeah, that's, uh, that's an excellent question. And I think, I think you could divide this up a little bit. I think okay. there's the practical aspect of what do they need to know, right? Some of it is why are you wanting to go in-house? Right. If it's for a vacation and a smooth retirement and the meadows you spoke about in our intro. Right, um, right. Daffodils and lilies. Yeah, that's probably a bad idea. So that's a myth. Okay. Because the work is different, but it's, it's work. And it's still, uh, especially if you're working at, at a company that has any number of employees, those employees bring personalities and issues and complexity. And the company will have a range of problems that don't always happen between nine and five. And so you will still work weekends and you will still work in the evening. And it may not be doing the things you were doing at a firm, but it will be something different. And so I think there's a whole list of things we could unpack around that about the practical aspect of what does your days look like? What type of work are you going to see? I think the other thing that people need to understand about in-house is it is very different today than it was five years ago, very different today than it is 10 years ago. The role of the in-house counsel and the general counsel has changed dramatically within companies. And you need to be prepared for what the modern day in-house counsel role looks like, not what maybe it was when everyone thought that it was the retirement package for a reward for serving your time in a law firm. You need a certain business-minded focus. You are a business advisor, and I think we could unpack a lot of that. And I think those fall under two very different buckets, if you will. Shruti, let's, let's maybe turn to you, since you're, since you're the other one amongst us who's actually had in-house experience. Bill says first that the work is, it's maybe not what people think about in-house work. It's not necessarily easier, it's different, and you've got all kinds of personalities and you still work late nights and weekends. Has that been your experience too? It has to a certain extent. You know, like I said, I've been in smaller legal departments where essentially we're not siloed over certain business teams. We kind of are the jack of all trades, you know, and Mm -hmm. so issues will come up. You'll always have fire drills. And sometimes I do work late in the evenings or on weekends. Another thing that I think is really important to point out is that oftentimes your time is not your own. It's not like being at a law firm with your office door shut and you're just drafting or reviewing things. You're in a lot of meetings to just learn more about the business, learn about strategy, or you just get pulled in to give advice or to um, get involved in a process on the outset. And, you know, with all of that time being consumed in meetings, oftentimes I don't even start doing my actual concrete work until, say, four in the afternoon. And you still have to meet certain deadlines. And so I end up taking some of that, you know, back with me. Another thing is, it's funny that Bill mentioned that a lot of in-house folks kind of stop being involved in bar associations. Um, I was involved, you know, with bar associations when I was at a firm, but I've continued in being involved and have actually become more involved. I'm currently president of a local minority bar association and by proxy, I'm involved in some of the other ones as well. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if I have to take time out to go to a luncheon or a bar association event, I don't just clock out at five o'clock. I still have to come back to the office or take that work home and, and complete it. 
So I think there's a certain trade-off that a lot of folks at firms don't realize when they go in-house. They think it's nine to five and that's it. They don't really have to think about anything afterwards, but it's not like you're just confined to your work and, you know, not integrated into the other parts of the company. There was something that, Bill, you wrote in your book where you said, not everything is an emergency. And so sometimes you just have to, there may be a problem. It's not a bet the company problem, but it's a problem. And sometimes you just have to wait it out and let it resolve itself. Shruti, do you, do you find yourself ever coming across that, that you just have to sit, be patient, let it resolve itself? Absolutely. I think one of the things that, you know, we as in-house counsel have to be aware of is we have to be comfortable with not giving an answer right away. You know, oftentimes Mm. people will come to you and say, oh, you know, I need this right away. And you don't know all of the facts. And I actually read that excerpt of Bill's book as well. And I, you know, I agree. Sometimes issues just kind of resolve themselves or you don't have all the facts. To counter that, though, you also have to be comfortable with making a judgment call on your feet without all of the information. Sometimes things are not necessarily a legal issue, but something will come up and you don't have the time or the resources to do a full-blown investigation to, you know, okay, should we do this or should we do that? And you just have to make that call and be comfortable with doing so. And I think for a lot of lawyers, that probably is hard to do, right? I mean, because we're used to saying, well, I don't know, I'll find out and then come back later with an answer. But you're saying sometimes you have to make a call right there on your feet, which I think could be kind of jarring for some folks. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I really had to learn and get comfortable with was, you know, when you're at a firm, you're writing a memo saying, okay, well, you know, if this happens, then this is what could happen. If this happens, this is the result. And really, all you need to do in-house is have like three bullet points. These are the three potential outcomes. These are the risks. That's it. And oftentimes, it's not legal's call to make, but it's just giving your assessment and then letting the leadership team or, you know, your internal clients make the call. And then, Bill, you said you said a second point is about the role of in-house counsel and how it's changing and kind of the landscape and what perhaps companies are looking for in terms of their in-house teams. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. You know, it used to be that you, when a company achieved a certain size, they might finally hire one general counsel. Right. They may have a, a deputy general counsel for a certain other division or something, but most of it was managing outside counsel, handling some corporate secretary responsibilities, and just really kind of running the litigation portfolio from an overseer standpoint, picking the law firm, being ultimately responsible for the selection of the firm, uh, having a relationship with those outside counsel, and being a litigation manager of sorts and providing some board advisory functions. But there wasn't a lot of reliance on the in-house counsel as a business partner from soup to nuts. And today that's just not the case. I mean, uh, Gallup went through a real change over the last you know, 10 years where a lot of the historical business just doesn't exist anymore. The type of work that the company was doing has transitioned and you know, the traditional market research side, you know, whether that's become sort of commodity-based. And so we've moved in different directions, more to, to advisory roles and data advisory. And so 
what you would have seen in the old world would have been the business leaders making decisions, looking at financials, looking at market changes, making decisions, and then general counsel dealing with whatever may have happened because of that, whether it's employment litigation from RIFs or whether it's customer issues, you know, any B2B lawsuits or anything else that may come up. Today, that's not what you see. What you see is having a seat at the table and providing legal and business insights uh, as a trusted partner and advisor through a whole process. So the leadership team having the general counsel with a seat at the table saying, hey, this is what we're looking at. What ideas do we have for transition? And then how will those transitions affect our workforce and our people? And um, is what we're going to do have impacts from our exposure to risks in the compliance and litigation space? And how do we mitigate those risks? And what should we do differently? And having a seat at the table to try to help shape products and service offerings so that you don't end up in the position old general counsel, old, and I don't mean old, uh, gray hair. I mean, you know, the older model of right. general counsel sure. who just got stuck cleaning up and thinking, dear God, what kind of idiot designed the program like this? Of course we were getting sued, right? Well, now you don't have to face that because you have a seat at the table to literally help shape programming, shape the changes in the company, shape the employment practices because you're sitting there and really helping protect the company, protect your client from the start of discussions all the way through the product life cycles. And I think that's a that's a drastic change in the type of in-house practice. I mean, to the point where we're really starting to see in-house departments insourcing, you know, insourcing immigration issues and for our H-1B issues and insourcing visa issues for moving our folks around our global offices, insourcing our government contracts litigation, insourcing our employment litigation or B2B litigation, still relying on maybe some alternative service providers uh, to do brief writing or to help with some research. But you're just seeing, you know, now this switch where even outside counsel are reaching out to us to say, well, how do we stay relevant, right? How do we right. not just get replaced by in-house firms that are becoming sometimes full service? It's a, it's a drastic change. There's some very big ones too, some very big in-house litigation departments. I mean, it's, it's happening, right? So, yeah, interesting changes all around. We could talk about this for hours and hours and hours. And obviously, for those that, that want to learn more, luckily there is a book. And Bill, that's that's your book, The Corporate Counsel Survival Guide. How do people get their hands on it? Well, right now it is for sale through the American Bar Association's bookstore. Uh, so they could either, you know, if you Google the Corporate Counsel Survival Guide, you'll, you'll find links to the ABA site. Amazon is also a way to pick it up. It's on pre-order right now because they're releasing a new edition for the Amazon sales. Uh, that won't actually be available until February of next year through Amazon. So right now you go through the ABA bookstore. And find it there and, and get themselves a copy. Now here's here's the other great little little life hack I'm gonna I'm gonna share with you out there when you're listening is if you ever go to an ABA conference and you happen to come across Bill Cruz and you happen to have his book in your hand, he will autograph it for you. Am I right, Bill? You are. I'll uh I'll even get to know you and make sure uh it's something personal. 
but for sure. And and I always Even love better. meeting people at the bar events and not just at random events, but you know, if you if, if there's ever people who have an interesting idea, I'm always trying to connect people on to speaking engagements, whether that's, you know, at a CLE or or giving you an opportunity to write and get published in a in a journal, a small journal entry or a or a blog post. You know, I think you know, something that, that Trudy and I are saying is that you have to stay relevant in your field. Too many in-house counsel I see become unplugged. They get really comfortable where they are. And with the changes we're talking about to a modern in-house counsel role, you have to stay professional and grow as an attorney. Uh, you cannot get right. stale. And, and this is important. It, well, it is. And I mean, I, I know personally, I've had I've had former in-house lawyers reach out to me when they're no longer in-house counsels, and it turns out they know nobody because they never took the time to get out and network and really get to know people. So that's that is sage advice. And you know, Shruti, you'd mentioned earlier about how mentorship was something you were really looking for, and that's what sort of prompted you to kind of maybe look for other pastors, and then you found yourself in-house. Would you be open to younger lawyers contacting you for? if they need a mentor and they need some advice? And if so, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Oh, absolutely. I'd be happy to. In fact, a recent member of the bar organization that I'm currently president of was a recent graduate and had moved to Texas. And we helped find her an in-house position right out of law school, which was great. Anyone who wants to reach out can reach me at shruti at zdosk.com. I can provide you, Rocky, with my email address and other contact information as well. And, you know, I think it's really important to continue networking once you're in-house. There are a lot of bar associations out there. There's also Association of Corporate Counsel. And really what I've found is I have this breadth of people now that I could reach out to who are also in-house counsel who, you know, come from a variety of backgrounds and are of different age ranges. And we kind of can lean on each other when it comes to any issues that come up. For example, if I have an employment issue come up and I am debating on whether I need to engage outside counsel or not on it, I can reach out to one of these folks and say, hey, you know, have you guys ever had an issue like this arise? If so, who did you use? And, you know, that's advice that I even give to people who are at firms is, you know, like once you're in-house, a lot of times you get your recommendations on who to engage as outside counsel from other in-house folks. Right, right. No, it makes a lot of sense. And so, no, that's sage advice for sure. And Bill, same question to you. If if somebody's looking for some mentorship, they need somebody to just kind of use as a sounding board, can they contact you? And if so, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah, I'm more than happy to work with law students coming out who think they might want to go in-house, lawyers who are thinking about a transition. They can easily reach me at bill underscore cruise at gallup.com. And, you know, the alternative, too, is there are in-house mentorship programs available. Uh, I know ABA Tips has one uh, that we helped mm-hmm. start about five years ago. And, it's a very robust you know, one. Every, yeah. It is. Every year we get, we get a lot of in-house counsel who agree to be mentors, and we pair them with in-house counsel, young in-house counsel who want to be mentees. Uh, they spend a, usually a year together having phone calls, coffees. You know, the best part about these mentor-mentee relationships 
is a lot of times you don't want to go, if you're a deputy general counsel or you're an associate general counsel, you don't want to go to your general counsel and say, hey, I know you tasked me with this new project and I just don't know what I'm doing or I'm unsure of myself or I'm unsure this is the place <laughs> right. I want to be forever or I know we're getting bought right. out and I'm scared of getting rift and what should I be doing? But that's where you really can rely on a mentor outside who's you know not affiliated to your company and you can say, hey, how do I deal with these situations? How do I handle a CFO who looks like he's going to clash with the new CEO and I'm stuck in the middle? How do I handle this problem mm-hmm. going on here where I'm being a pawn in an internal power struggle at work? Or it looks like we're merging and or we're being bought out and there's a whole new legal department coming in. How do I try to tell someone that I want to be here? Or how do I tell someone... I don't want to be here because I don't like the new corporate culture, but I also need my job. So how do I handle that discussion? Those are a lot of things that a mentor-mentee relationship can foster that are beyond just the practice of law. So I would, I would encourage not just to reach out to me, but also to you know, go to the ABA TIPS website, look for the Corporate Council Committee, and put in an application for a mentor. And every year, new mentors are assigned with mentees, and it's a, it's a great program. I know you and Shruti are also both on LinkedIn, so that's another way for folks to maybe reach out and, and message. And you know, even if you're not the right mentors for them, you might be able to connect them with folks or send them over to tips or, or wherever. So you know, if they're looking to connect with you, LinkedIn is another place that I know from experience is a great way to, to kind of reach out to both of you. That's true. Absolutely. So, you know, guys, I want to thank both of you for being here. You've given of your time and of your experiences and your wisdom. There are a lot of folks out there who I'm sure will will be able to benefit from this. So thank you both for your time. Bill, Shruti, you guys have been a fountain of knowledge. Well, I hope so. This was really enjoyable. Thank you very much, Rocky. Absolutely. Shruti, thank you as well. Oh, no, thank you. And, you know, I wish I had Bill's book before I went in-house because I plowed through about 50 pages of it last night, and it really is quite instructive. Well, I'm glad you said that. (laughs) I'm glad you like it. (laughs) He did not pay me to say that. (laughs) I did not. No, no. Bill wouldn't pay any of us to do anything. Are you kidding me? I've known him a long time. But all joking aside, it is very... It's very entertaining to read, too. It's a very easy read. It's a page turner. So I do recommend that anybody interested in the in-house life should get their hands on this book. It is something that I think will make a very wonderful addition to your to your reading list. So, you know, guys, again, thank you again. And thank you out there for listening. You make this show what it is, and you make this podcast what it is, and we can't do this without you. So thank you so much for being here. I had made you a little promise earlier that going in-house was the promised land, or I'd made a statement that it's the promised land. And actually, it turns out it may not be the promised land. It is actually a very promising land. And if you've got the right people in your corner and you've got the right questions to ask, it can be a very, very rewarding career. So if any of you are interested, please take advantage of the resources that you have heard here. And please be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts and give us a review. We need to know how we're doing and we'd love to hear what you think. And remember, guys... Life is a journey, and we want to thank you for tuning in to the State Bar of Texas podcast. This is Rocky Deer signing off for now. We'll see you next time. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to TexasBar.com slash podcasts 
Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the State Bar of Texas, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.